1911, John Scott Haldane posited an idea to prevent coal miners in Britain from dying from the odorless gas carbon monoxide. He suggested that miners carry caged canaries down into the tunnels with them. Canaries are particularly vulnerable to airborne poisons. If the animal became ill or died, that would give miners an opportunity to evacuate. The idiom canary in a coal mine is now popularly used to denote someone or something that is an early warning of danger. Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. So since about the third week of quarantine, I've been obsessively thinking and writing about the erosion of social cohesion and the continuing efflorescence of socio-political polarization. And even if you don't contemplate these subjects, they are hard to avoid. Just open your Facebook app and it will take you about 10 seconds to get swept away by the invective. Invidious all-caps screaming matches about mask wearing or hydroxychloroquine. This should not be confused with public debate. These are private acts happening in public, solving nothing except to further our atomization and fealty to our political identities. And we have myriad salient societal problems, the starkest currently being COVID and racial justice and potentially the most existential being global warming and rising authoritarianism. And there are countless other interrelated issues jabbing us on the nose, including, but not limited to, income inequality, chronic disease and poor nutrition, lack of quality education, criminal justice, and ascendant fundamentalism. But sitting behind all of these grave symptoms is a more pervasive and insidious illness. We are suffering from an absolute inability to cooperate. Almost every issue we face exists in a blunt binary framework and thrusts us into unambiguous role-playing in a sparring match of identity politics, pro-life or pro-choice, racist or anti-racist, pro-gun or pro-gun control, pro-police or defund the police, pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, and on and on. In truth, these issues are profoundly complicated and nuanced. Our positions are obstinately girded in biases that are confirmed and reconfirmed on social media. Our feeds are driven by algorithms and artificial intelligence that arguably understand our preconceptions better than we do ourselves. Every once in a while, we venture out beyond the borders of our prescribed socio-political landscape. And even more rarely, we summon the strength to engage in thoughtful dialogue, only to be eviscerated by a swarm of locusts. This is the modern instantiation of the public square. Now, social media has proved to be a brilliant organizing tool, but it is an abysmal sandbox for discourse. Agreement on even the simplest measures of our social contract or engaging in the most token sacrifices for our mutual benefit 
now seem out of grasp. 40 years ago, less than 25% of us lived in a landslide district where one candidate won in a landslide over another. Now that number is 80%. We've bunkered ourselves in echo chambers so resonant that all we hear are modifications of our own voice. And any thoughtful deviation from that voice now carries a personal risk where simply questioning the political orthodoxy of your group or steel-manning your opponent's point of view in an attempt to more solidly cement your own can cost you your reputation, or in some cases, your job. Our ability to engage in thorough and respectful debate has deteriorated, but it is these very conversations that are essential in order that liberal democracy function. We have always had disagreement, but never have we been so disagreeable. Humanity's rise to the top of the food chain is reliant on our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale, to find uneasy consensus. Our inability to commune may lead to our demise. In attempt to address this affliction of dissonance, we need to commit ourselves to creating forum for the thoughtful, respectful exchange of ideas. Even though it may seem daunting, we must humbly seek out thorny, substantive conversations. If we care about America, and there's plenty of good reason to, we must move beyond performative posts and memes as our primary method of communication. And when someone asks for conversation, which is the central focus of the podcast today, we need to meet their bravery halfway. I mean, how much vitriol can we withstand before our country completely unravels? Okay, so with that preamble, I'll dive into today's episode, which we call Canary in a Coal Mine, the idiomatic origin of which was shared at the top of the show. Since the brutal murder of George Floyd on May 25th, we have had a summer of civil unrest unlike anything we've seen in multiple generations. Some of this data are slightly dated, but still should express the scale of the activity in the streets. So as of July 3rd, approximately 20 million people have participated at some point in the demonstrations in the United States, making the protests the largest in United States history. This mass level of participation is underscored by the fact that it has taken place against the backdrop of the largest viral epidemic in 100 years. This can only reflect the depth of the frustration and the anger. Now, while the majority of protests have been peaceful, Demonstrations in some cities have escalated into riots, looting, and skirmishes with police. There have been numerous cases where cops have responded to protests with instances of police brutality, including against reporters, and other cases of police standing down while looters have ravaged businesses, and even other instances of police taking a knee with protesters, a symbolic act which we will discuss in this episode. At least 200 cities in the United States have imposed curfews, while more than 30 states and Washington, D.C. have activated over 62,000 National Guard personnel due to the mass unrest. By June 30th, at least 14,000 people had been arrested, including the four police officers involved in the incident which led to Floyd's death. As of July 5th, at least 26 people have died during the protests, 22 due to gunshot wounds. How did we get here? Perhaps it can be argued that we needed the scab to be crudely pulled off this four centuries old wound. But did George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and others have to die 
in order for racial justice to take center stage? Did businesses already hobbled from the pandemic need to be looted and burned? Did mass protests, which undoubtedly led to some spread of COVID-19, need to happen for us to have a national moral inventory on race? Could all of this tumult have been averted if we had paid attention to the person that warned us of impending danger, to the canary in the coal mine? The silhouette image of Colin Kaepernick is ubiquitous. Stenciled on sidewalks and spray-painted on boarded-up businesses, the image of Kaepernick with his signature afro has become the unmistakable icon of racial justice. On the left, he is celebrated as a martyr. On the right, a pariah. His image has become weaponized by the media, both conservative and progressive. And because each side has claimed a certain version of him, it's easy to forget what he was asking for in the first place. And to be honest, I didn't even really remember myself until I went back. And this episode is an account of that story. On August 14th and August 20th, 2016, Colin Kaepernick, a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers football franchise, remained seated during the national anthem. This was during the preseason, and nobody noticed him on the bench nestled between Gatorade thermoses as other players stood. Then, on August 26th, Jennifer Lee Chan of Niners Nation, a 49ers fan group, tweeted out a photo of the anthem, entirely unrelated to Kaepernick or his protest. However, fans noticed him sitting, and word spread quickly. On August 28th, in the 49ers locker room, Kaepernick, confronted by a group of reporters, addressed his objectives for sitting during the anthem. I urge everyone to watch his original interview in its entirety to understand Kaepernick's intentions and to witness his demeanor. In a series of thoughtful and composed answers explaining his actions, he directly addresses the issue of police brutality and insufficient police training. There is police brutality. Uh, People of color have been targeted by police. So that's a large part of it. And they're government officials. They're put in place by the government. So, you know, that's something that this country has to change. There's things we can do to, you know, hold them more accountable, make those standards higher. You have people that practice law and are lawyers and go to school for eight years, but you can become a cop in six months and don't have to have the same amount of training as a cosmetologist. That's, that's insane. I mean, someone that's holding a curling iron has more education and more training than people that have a gun and are going out on the street to protect us. Evidently, the 2015 police shooting of Mario Woods spurred Kaepernick's decision to protest. And here Kaepernick goes on to explain the responsibility he feels to take a stand. This is because I'm seeing things happen to people that don't have a voice people that don't have a platform to talk and have their voices heard and affect change. So I'm in a position where I can do that, and I'm going to do that for people that can't. And then a reporter brings up the idea that the flag and the anthem have special symbolic meaning for military personnel. Here's Kaepernick's response to this reporter. You know, I have great respect for men and women that have fought for this country. I have family, I have friends that have gone and fought for this country. 
and they fight for freedom. They fight for the people, they fight for liberty and justice for everyone. And that's not happening. I mean, people are dying in vain because this country isn't holding their end of the bargain up as far as, you know, giving freedom and justice and liberty to everybody. Finally, he's asked about whether or not his actions will disrupt the team. No, I don't see it as a distraction. I think it's something that can unify this team is something that can unify this country. You know, if we have these real conversations that are uncomfortable for a lot of people, if we have these conversations, there's a better understanding where both sides are coming from. And if we reach common ground and can understand what everybody's going through, we can really affect change and make sure that everybody's treated equally and has the same freedom. Okay, so Colin Kaepernick is exercising his right to protest peacefully so that America can have a hard conversation about race, about police, and about systemic racism. It seems, all in all, a pretty reasonable request, but not everyone hears it that way, and the story catapults into the headlines. For some historical context, this is August 2016. Barack Obama is in the final lap of his presidential tenure, and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are locked in a tight, heated race with the election just over two months away. On August 29th, from the campaign trail, Donald Trump weighs in, clearly putting his flag in the ground. I think it's a terrible thing. And, uh, you know, he'll uh, maybe he should find a country that works better for him. Let him try. It won't happen. And Trump is not the only one offended by Kaepernick's actions. The Army Times, an internal military publication for active and retired Army personnel, asks Green Beret Nate Boyer to write an open letter in response. Boyer, who is white, is a former long snapper, a football special teams specialist whose duty is to snap the football over a long distance, often to a punter. In his open letter, Boyer admits to feeling hurt and offended, asserting that Kaepernick's actions disrespect those in uniform, the very people who have fought to protect his First Amendment rights. And Kaepernick somehow reads the letter and seeks out Boyer to have a conversation. So they decide to meet the following Sunday at the team's hotel in San Diego prior to the 49ers game that night against the Chargers. They meet in the lobby for 90 minutes, and Kaepernick is joined by his teammate, Eric Reed. Boyer describes his meeting with Kaepernick in this interview a week later. We talked about, we talked about veterans' issues. We talked about all kinds of things. And then we kind of got to um, where we're at today. It was Military Appreciation Night in San Diego, an already big military town. And you know, I told him, I said, you know, it's Military Appreciation Night at the game. There's going to be a lot of vets in the stands. And he's like, you know, honestly, I didn't even, I didn't realize it was, you know, that. And I said, yeah. And I said, I mean, besides that, a way that a lot of veterans are, are seeing this kind of isolating yourself, sitting back on the bench, maybe there's another way you can show that, you know. And I, I suggested first that he stand. I mean, I want him to stand, you know right, what I mean? Right. I, I do. Um, I suggested he stand maybe with his head bowed or something like that. And, um, and then we sort of came to a, to a middle ground and decided – you know, especially being alongside his teammates, I thought that was very important. You know, yes. that's more unified. Sure. Um, and I said, you know, taking a knee, honestly, that's a sign of uh, of respect. You know, what I mean, people people take a knee to pray. 
You know, we called it T-bowing right. a few years ago. Yeah, and now right, it's, right, uh, right. And now it's different. Now it's Kaepernicking, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, uh, and then also you know, soldiers, I mean, veterans, military personnel, whatever. On a patrol, when we, when we do a security haul, you know, we take mm -hmm. a knee and pull security or um, standing in front of maybe a fallen brother's uh, grave, you know, we would take a knee as a sign of respect. So I saw that image as something that was, um, while still getting his point across, definitely yes. um, much more respectful. And I think a lot of people would agree no, with that. No, no. And I think what happened, uh, Nate Boyer... Boyer and Kaepernick find a common ground in kneeling, a practice that is employed in prayer, in honoring the dead, in proposing to a loved one, and in taking audience with royalty. Even at my kids' soccer games, when there is an injury on the field, everyone takes a knee and then claps in support as the player limps off the field. And Boyer went on to say, quote, it took courage for him to sit initially. It took more courage to bend his position a little bit. I told him if they knelt, I would be next to them with my hand on my heart because I support your right to peacefully protest in this country. That's what I fought for. And that is actually what happened. That night in San Diego, Kaepernick took a knee instead of sitting, and Boyer stood beside him with his hand over his heart. After the game, Kaepernick agrees to donate a million dollars to social justice groups. The image of these two men, one black, one white, is a rare example of two people with opposing opinions coming together and finding common ground. Taking a knee, an act that has tradition and reverence, was a way to honor Boyer while still making a point. However, this example of unity was one that America could not mirror. The following Sunday, there's a chain reaction within the league with more players kneeling in peaceful protest. On September 8th, 2016, Broncos linebacker Brandon Marshall takes a knee during the NFL season opener. On September 11th, 2016, four Dolphins, including Arian Foster, Michael Thomas, Kenny Stills, and Jelani Jenkins, take a knee during the national anthem. Chiefs cornerback Marcus Peters raises a fist during the national anthem, and Patriots tight end Martellus Bennett and defensive back Devin McCourty raise fists after the national anthem, acts reminiscent of the indelible image of John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the metal podium in Mexico City in 1968. So fast forward, the season ends, and on March 3rd, 2017, Kaepernick opts out of his contract with the San Francisco 49ers. And even though he is a free agent, Kaepernick is not signed by any NFL team during the offseason. And he has not played a single game since. Even though Kaepernick is out of the league, a reality that many claim reflects collusion amongst franchise owners, the controversy is still alive and well as we roll into the next football season. In 2017, now President Trump, emboldened by his victory, gives this critique of players kneeling. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? To say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Trump's comments only incite more protest. And on September 24th, virtually every team in the entire league has players that kneel or join arms to bring focus to social justice issues. On October 8th, Vice President Mike Pence flies to Indianapolis to attend the game between the Colts and the 49ers. 
In a pre-orchestrated move, Pence stages a dramatic walkout as a protest to the protest. In May 2018, facing pressure from sponsors and lower TV ratings, Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, announces that teams will be fined if players kneel for the anthem. The policy was later frozen and is now under review. In June 2020, Goodell releases a statement condemning systemic racism and apologizing for not listening to NFL players earlier when they tried to address racial injustice. So we never had the hard conversation that Kaepernick asked for, and racial tensions continued to mount. In July 2016, the month leading up to Kaepernick's protest, the murders of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were captured on mobile video and widely shared. In 2018, there were 22 unarmed black men shot and killed by the police, and in 2019, another 14. On March 13, 2020, as part of a no-knock raid, police forcibly entered the Louisville apartment of Breonna Taylor and shot her fatally. And finally, on May 25th, we hit the boiling point when Derek Chauvin, a Minneapolis police officer, brutally murdered George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds while bystanders pleaded with him to stop. And here we are, reckoning with continuing protest and now the deployment of federal agents to American cities. Colin Kaepernick was certainly not the first celebrity or athlete to use his or her platform to highlight racial injustice. Jesse Owens, Bill Russell, Muhammad Ali, and the aforementioned John Carlos and Tommy Smith came before him. And scores of others have sounded the alarm, including Black Lives Matter, in the wake of the Ferguson riots in 2014. But now we are paying attention at an entirely different level. The fight for racial justice has become mainstream. And you have to ask, why is this happening now? Could it be because people are making real noise? It's not just a polite ask or a peaceful kneel. Most of the protests are peaceful, but there are significant amounts of rioting and looting. We should all raise our hands quickly to admonish this violence. The destruction of local businesses and the burning of neighborhoods is heart-wrenching, and in many cases, it will take years for these neighborhoods to rebuild. Violence also throws a lifeline to a president whose only remaining game plan for re-election is to resort to a law-and-order strategy, one that has often had electoral success, as exemplified by Nixon, Reagan, and even to some degree Clinton. If there is one bomb, one high casualty event, irrespective of the source of that nefariousness, you can easily imagine mainstream support for racial justice switching from favoring reforms to public safety. There are few, if any, in this movement that don't think that four more years of this administration is not an existential threat. The slowness of Americans to reckon with racial justice raises this question. Do we only pay attention to issues when they reach the inflection point of absolute crisis? Is society analogous to an alcoholic needing to hit rock bottom before he or she seeks medical intervention? If so, this gives a certain credibility and legitimacy to civil disobedience. Here's an excerpt from Martin Luther King's famous speech, The Other America, 
delivered at Stanford University on April 14, 1967. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. The language of the unheard is what is being amplified right now. But there was a moment in 2016 when the protest was completely peaceful, when it dominated every headline, and when the plea for conversation was completely thoughtful and totally reasonable, and we passed on it. Are unarmed black people disproportionately killed by the police? Well, if you share my political leanings, you will likely be triggered, as I was, by the very posing of this question. However, there are scholars like John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, and Coleman Hughes who challenge our deeply held preconceptions about the police and deadly force. If we have confidence in the power of conversations to transform society, then that belief includes being, at times, in extreme discomfort, as Kaepernick noted, and listening to thoughtful counter-narratives, if only to more deeply cement our own convictions. But to only focus on the use of deadly force by the police is to ignore the complicated and deeply racist history of policing, from slave patrols to the KKK to the war on drugs, as well as a rigged criminal justice system that imprisons black people at a rate five times more than whites. There are approximately half a million black people in jails and prisons, many of whom are used for cheap or free labor by private companies. Now, I hope to get Khalil Gibran Muhammad on the show to discuss these issues. But for now, you can listen to his interview on Radiolab for a comprehensive history of policing in the United States. It's something everybody needs to know about. And this doesn't even touch inequities relating to wealth, income, health, access to quality food, and education. We just can't pass on this conversation any longer. And what else are we passing on? Who else is sounding the alarms that we are ignoring? Paul Hawken, Bill McKibben, and Greta Thunberg on global warming? I mean, what catastrophe will we need to endure to tackle this issue? Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Tom Piketty on income inequality? I mean, currently there are three people in the United States that have more wealth than the aggregate of the bottom 50%. I mean, how much worse could it get? I mean, can we listen to student activists like Emma Gonzalez on gun control? Or will we need to live through another mass school shooting? Can we find the discernment and the humility to listen to voices that are sounding the alarm bell, pleading for thoughtful conversation, who are in the mines, breathing the carbon monoxide before any of us? You know, if we have these real conversations that are uncomfortable for a lot of people, if we have these conversations, there's a better understanding where both sides are coming from. And if we reach common ground and can understand what everybody's going through, we can really affect change and make sure that everybody's treated equally and has the same freedom.